Hello and welcome back to the Second Row Podcast. My name is Paul Kelly and as always I'm joined by Ocean Collins. Hello Paul. we survived the Six Nations. Yeah, a few weeks off. I was over in Cardiff last weekend. That must have been fun. It really wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was watching it here with all the gang and it wasn't exactly fun, but the finale game made it a little bit interesting anyway. The Six Nations ended with a bang anyway. It certainly did. And we're going to talk about that in amongst the news. But before we go on, the Second Row podcast is available on all podcast apps from Apple iTunes to SoundCloud to Acast, pretty much everywhere. So get on board, rate, like and subscribe to the podcast there. This week we will talk round 18 of the Pro 14, but before we do, we have a chat through the rugby news and we'll kick off with a bit of a wrap up on the Six Nations. Uh, what a tournament, well done Wales. Well done Wales, literally defended their way to a Grand Slam. I mean, I, I, I kind of referred to Wales as a clown fiesta um, about two months back in a group chat with some friends and there is a lot of egg on my face now. And really, really well deserved, <laughs> to be honest. Um Scotland, great result for them on that final day. Well, more the comeback, more than the result, but disappointing Six Nations. It has been, but I think expectations just dipped and dipped for Scotland as more and more players ended up on the medics table. Tough for them when they lose players of the quality of Stuart Hogg, missing Finn Russell for key games, Hamish Watson, who made such an impact when he came back. They literally were missing a full first team of players at one point. But to actually put in some of the performances they did is actually credit to them. It is, and they would have had a much better outcome had they turned over a French side that appeared to not know what was going on from week to week. Or day to day, minute <laughs> to minute, you know. Yeah. Like, when people are coming on and not knowing where they're meant to be or who they're coming on for, things are bad. Yeah. Uh, Italy really just haven't kicked on at all. Five losses out of five this year and making a mockery of the good form of their club sides in the Pro 14. It's so hard to tell what they're doing at international level. Because I think Conor Shea has been tailoring game plans for the teams he's against, there's no Italian style of rugby, and I think that needs to start coming to the fore. But you know what? They're still lots better than Georgia. They proved that in the autumn. Not a conversation we need to continue to keep having, but we do need to see Italy kick on. And what about Ireland? Like, How worried are you coming into a World Cup? These players have not suddenly become bad players. They had a bad tournament. I think the flaws in Ireland's game plan that were there two years ago when Wales showed us up, are still there. So when teams blitz us and score ahead and rack up a lead, we struggle. We've struggled for this for the last two years. We just won everything last year, and that's why no one kind of cared about it. The big concern for me continues to be the halfbacks, and there is no denying that Conor Murray and Johnny Sexton are world-class operators. But having had the tournament they did, you just need to hope that they find form ahead of the World Cup, because... If they're playing like that in Japan, we're going to do well to get out of our group, let alone get to semi-finals or final. For me, I thought it was a tactical mistake by Joe Schmidt to let them find form at international level. There were club games they could have gone back and played for two, one or two weeks and let their replacements and their understudies come in and play at a higher tempo, that, which they did when they came off the bench. Speaking of replacements and understudies, nice to see Jack Carty get some game time. Looked very impressive. Good to see game time for the likes of Ty Byrne as well in that Ireland setup. But in general, I think the World Cup squad is fairly well known. The game plan is fairly well known. It's just about hoping that the form brings us to where we know we can play. It's more the Irish team need their players to play at that standard that they're capable of. And I think a few tweaks to our attacking plan because it's a bit blunt. A little bit. We'd like to see a little bit more incision there. Moving on to one of the other Six Nations. And as good as Wales were on the pitch... Off the pitch, they continue to be a bit of a disaster, although it does at least look like there will be four Welsh regions next year. Ospreys, Scarlets, Dragons and Cardiff Blues 
still probably going to be in the Pro 14? Yeah, next year, it's all the same. The four regions will continue to be in the Pro 14 and in European Rugby. Challenge and Champions Cup. Oh, okay, fair enough. (laughs) But after that, who knows? Like, this rolling year to year on the PRB in Wales is just madness. You like to think something around that will get sorted sooner rather than later and not have the same nonsense dragging into the back half of next season. And speaking of nonsense, yep, the World Rugby League, it's still nonsense. Well, the latest thing that I saw, this was all about, you know, feeling that tier two nations are being blocked out of the game. They are. Well, obviously. But a tweet that I read during the week said that even if current tier one nations end up getting relegated out of the division one within the World League, they still get to keep their sponsorship revenue. So... It's not like more money is going to turn up. So I'm not sure how this is addressing the financial inequalities in the game. I mean, maybe the playing opportunities. But it doesn't change the playing opportunities because there's actually now less windows for Tier 2 opposition to play Tier 1 opposition. If they're not in that league. Yep, for sure. So that golfing class will just keep increasing. It needs an awful lot more work before it's ready for discussion and it's definitely being rushed through by people who've got their own interests at heart. Money at heart. Like It screams money. It seems like World Rugby is chasing short-term money to fix short-term problems, whereas the long-term picture that will address all the problems is being forgotten about. Speaking of addressing the longer-term problems, there are some new law trials likely to come up. And the two that really jumped out at me is the yellow card upgrade and the fifty twenty two rule. Do you want to talk through them, Park? The yellow card upgrade makes sense to me. And that is when a ref gives a yellow card, the TMO can then go check and actually go, hold on a second, no, that should have been a red. Mm-hmm. Which, that makes sense. It's a good use of the technology available. But how will that work at an international level when the ref has to call on the TMO? I think that's the point. It's going to change. It's going to be an additional job for the TMO. The fifty twenty two rule could be really tactically interesting for me. This is where a kick from inside a player's own half, if it bounces and rolls into touch in the opposition 22, the kicking team actually get the line out, similar to a rule that exists within Rugby League. The idea being to force teams to defend deeper in the backfield, create more spaces and reduce the number of tackle impacts, while also giving more opportunities for line breaks. I can see the unintended consequence of this being more kick tennis. Yeah, probably. But, you know, it's another way of playing your game and you don't have to do it. But the consequences, if you don't, are pretty bleak. There should be more space on the pitch. Yeah. I think the next step is like reducing the scrums, maybe the line out a bit, 13 men. No, stop it. (laughs) Okay, I know what you're doing. (laughs) Look, moving swiftly along from that insidious line of reasoning, another unfortunate piece of news this week broke that the Sunwolves, as of the end of next season, are going to be wound down and won't compete within Super Rugby, which is tremendously disappointing for the global game and really disappointing for Japan, who obviously they were hoping that their hosting of the Rugby World Cup would have kicked on, generated more interest in the game, more revenue around the game, but losing their Super Rugby side, as they now seem certain to do, can't help that. No, and the Japanese league isn't good enough to really grow the game there. They need a focal point team at the very top, playing high-level competition, and setting and raising the standards for, for Japanese players. This is a bad thing for rugby. And what it may lead to is some sort of a Pacific Islands, Japanese, West Coast, US breakaway league. It's so strange the way World Rugby's leagues are forming and changing around at the moment. I think we just have to watch this space, but definitely a step backwards with what Sanzar were hoping to do with the Japanese market for rugby. Sometimes when it comes to World Rugby and leagues, uh, deck chairs and Titanic come to mind. (laughs) 
Well, look, enough of the news um, after our, our longest ever news segment. Let's get into the weekend's rugby. And we started on Friday night with Connacht hosting Benetton in the sports ground, getting a 29 points to 14 bonus point win. Mission accomplished. Yeah. Let's be perfectly honest, though. At 60 minutes, that result didn't look likely. No, both teams struggled to impress dominance upon this game, and Connacht really weren't even playing like a home side. They were getting pinned back by Benetton for a lot of the first half. They were kicking tactically really well, but their execution of it was really poor. I know that sounds wrong, but they just weren't picking the right kicks. Yeah, I think the other side of it, though, was when they did kick, that back three for Connacht of Healy, O'Halloran and Daryl Leader are all pretty dangerous counter-attackers, and they were able to generate line breaks an awful lot easier than Benetton's defence coach will have liked. Yeah, which is shocking, given the really good defence Benetton tend to have. Mm -hmm. That being said, I think we realise as we're watching, their defence just goes up a notch at their 22 line. And do you know what, though? It did also play into Connacht's hands, though. Because Godwin isn't really a structured tactical 10. He's he's a centre being played out of position at 10. So He's, Connacht, the, he's the perfect 22. <laughs> yeah, he's a great bench player. But what that meant was Connacht were looking for opportunities from transition. And then as they got into the 22, not only did Benetton's defence tighten up, but Connacht's ability to be clever and break down the ball disappeared. Those first 50 metres they were making off kick return, very easy players you know using their own flair to break lines but when they have to do something structured not so much yeah it was really disappointing to watch and our entry to the 22 to scores taken was poor for professional rugby team having said that Connacht were cruising towards half time with two tries looking pretty good but then conceded on the stroke of half time to Antonio Rizzi who came on early for Ian McKinley and in all fairness that all stemmed from good Benetton pressure like the 10 minutes either side of half time they really did control the ball they did. And you know what? The, the scrum was a bit of a mess. Benetton's offloading and line-breaking ability was looking really well. But the real difference for this game came off Connacht's bench when you were just able to unload some serious talent into this. And you take off Godwin, you bring on Jack Carty. You take off Quinn and Blade, you bring on Marmion. That's a significant improvement in standards. It really was. And the pace of the game just went up two or three notches it was enjoyable to watch i say even for you as a neutral watching it with me you actually enjoyed that last 20 minutes it just really kicked off it wasn't just the pace though for me it was the fact that it was a lot more direct connaught weren't running around the line anymore carty was picking passes that straightened the line and went right at the gaps in the benetton defense which as time went on and again so weird to see this they started to tire they started to lose their concentration and I guess given the overlap between the Benetton squad and the Italy squad in the Six Nations that's no real surprise that group of players for Benetton hadn't lost a game since December which means they played all the games <laughs> since December exactly so I'm not surprised they tired they do have a week off next week I think they're trying to get one more hit of a win they have a really hard run in for the rest of the Pro 14 I think they were hoping to get something from this. They were, and to leave without even a bonus point will have been disappointing, but you can't defend the way that they did and lose those kind of line breaks, even if Connacht were going to be so inefficient with their 22 entries, particularly in the first half. But you know what? The result that Connacht needed, they have a tough run in as well, and they had to take maximum points from this game, which they did. Especially with what happened in Cardiff. Cardiff beating Scarlet's 41 points to 17. Massive bonus point win, and kind of unexpected not necessarily the result going that way but the scoreline the scoreline and the scale of it because that scoreline nearly flatters scarlets they were just getting beaten every time cardiff decided to put the ball out wide a couple of passes and they were finding the outside edge so easily 
And when all tries come from wingers, you, you just know that's where it's happening. They're just creating that space for wingers to just attack on. Notable exception for Josh Turnbull, who like barreled through the middle of a load of players to get a try. Part of that, I think, was that Lee Halfpenny was having a really poor game. Obviously, was just on the fringes of that Wales squad, never really got his fitness enough to get into the team, particularly with Liam Williams playing as well as he was. But just was out of position, was tackling with his face. And to add to that, he was poor under the high ball, one of his famous strengths. Really not doing a good job at fullback. Again, he was being absolutely peppered. Cardiff with their double pivots of Gareth Anscombe and Jared Evans. Who had an incredible game, by the way. Outstanding. They were just able to drop bomb after bomb on that backfield. There was kick-throughs. There was good variation. The centre partnership of Willis Halahalo and Ray Lilo looked like the centre partnership that was there last year and at the start of this season. They just did really, really well. They're timing their form perfectly for this end-of-season run-in. And... In those games early on in the season when they just switched off for 10 minutes and ended up losing, this was an 80-minute performance almost that let them win, which they weren't doing earlier on in the year. And a lot of that coming from their back row. They lost Josh Navidi really early, and that's a challenge to any team. Like, really nasty-looking injury. Hope he's okay. But Nick Williams and Ollie Robinson in particular had an outstanding game. Nick Williams with his classic tackling a player who's nowhere near the ball moment. Like, at this time, I think his sponsors are paying him to do one one a match, so they can see his jersey and, and the sponsorship name on it. Even the home crowd got into that. and It was a good crowd, actually. It was nice Full to see house. the Arms Park busy. Yeah, for sure. That does come off the back of an incredible Grand Slam win last Last week, but this Cardiff team are taking the Welsh turn at being the good Welsh team this season. They are, and they ran into half time with a 38 nil lead. Having said that, they will have been a little bit disappointed with what happened in the second half. Scarlett's emptied the bench, took off Reese Patchell, who just didn't look anything like himself, and brought on front row replacements Rob Evans, Ken Owens, and Samson Lee. Like, that's an all international front row. And the scrum dominance that they were able to gain back proved how smart a move that was for the Scarlets. Between the scrum and the line-out, Scarlets just started to control the second half. The difference between the two teams is Cardiff could do more with the possession they had in the first than Scarlets could do with the possession they had in the second. And that speaks volumes to the defensive qualities of both teams. Cardiff were defending accurately, they were slowing the ball down, they were just continuing to choke the game out even if they didn't have any real possession in the second half. I think Scarlets having like 80% of the ball after halftime or something insane like that. But it's still impressive to be able to bring your bench on like that and change a game from where it was. Makes you wonder if they got their selections right, particularly given that they're not involved in Europe next week. And given the fact it's so tight for those playoff positions, I think it was a bad call not to go out all guns to blazing. Scarlets don't have the easiest run-in to the season as well, uh, although potentially they have the easier of the run-ins of the likes of Ulster and Benetton, who are also competing for those slots in Conference B. But similar to Benetton, leaving here with zero points out of a derby match will have been a frustration. But winning that second half, 17-3, is something they can build on. Cardiff only getting one penalty in the second half is poor. It is, and I think it was a case for me of the job was done and it was a little bit about conserve your strength have, here. Have they not watched the English match? <laughs> well, you know what? It didn't come to us, so we'll allow it in this particular case, I think. Either way, a good result for Cardiff, and it really keeps the pressure on in that battle for third place in Conference A. Whereas our third game on Friday evening was a Conference B affair, Edinburgh hosted Leinster, and I saw the team sheets come out. I thought Edinburgh were going to win. I was pretty confident Edinburgh were going to win, particularly when Ross Byrne went down with injury during the week and Frawley went to 10. Yeah, I was like, okay, lads, 
good luck. And they needed all the luck they could find and none of it came available. No, Edinburgh came out 28 points to 11 bonus point winners over Leinster. I think the first time nearly all season that Leinster have failed to take any match points from a game. Certainly, it's a rarity. They got bullied around the park. They just got strangled. Edinburgh's pack was all over them. And what's disappointing from a Leinster perspective is that back row is Reese Ruddock, Max Deegan and Dan Levy. That's a good back row. Yeah, two internationals there and one of the up-and-coming stars of Leinster rugby. But they came up against Bill Massa, Hamish Watson and John Barkley. Oh, it's okay though, because Magnus Bradbury came off the bench. <laughs> like, what a competition, and like, what an incredible set of back rows. What amazed me was usually when Leinster get beaten, it's because someone puts them off their game. Edinburgh didn't put Leinster off their game. They beat Leinster at Leinster's own game. Long, sustained phases of possession, controlled rugby, big territory advantage. And the thing is, Edinburgh didn't have to play incredibly well to win the game. Their scores came easily. Yeah, Leinster actually looked like an away team, low on confidence, missing a couple of key players. And I think probably missing a little bit of that killer instinct, which is understandable given that they've already won their division. And if you're Leo Cullen and Stuart Lancaster, you're looking at these players kind of going, all right, who's going to fight for a European spot? Who's going to fight for the semi-final place on the 23 at the end of the season for the Pro 14 no one who played on Friday night screamed pick me pick me and if you're trying to build momentum for lots of tough rugby you need your second string players fighting for those places momentum is an interesting idea because how many of those guys are going to be in the 23 next week against Ulster I would wager not a lot of them and there's a couple of players who won't I think get near a match day 23 for the rest of the season a couple of players in particular, just every time they touch the ball, something went wrong. This is Ushing not trying to say Joe Tamani, but also <laughs> saying Joe Tamani. Yeah, I mean, he really hasn't fired since he signed for Leinster. Was a top pro down at the Brumbies, Australian international, but either the Pro 14 or Leinster's style of play doesn't suit him. And he had a mare last night. He did. And the thing is, he wasn't the only bad player. He just did, had the obvious things that people can point and go, look, look, look how bad he is. But the thing is, he's only played, what, six games for Leinster? He's been injured half the season. Yeah. I didn't like Kyle Godwin when he came to Connacht. It took him half a year of actually playing before he kind of fit in. Where's Tamani had that opportunity? Yeah, but Kyle Godwin wasn't getting skittled every time he tried to make a tackle. I'm not trying to defend Joe Tamani. He did have a bad game. It's just, it's all about managing expectations of what players are going to give and giving them time to grow. And I think there's players in that team who will kick on from this. Jimmy O'Brien at fullback looks talented, but didn't have his didn't have his best game. Conor O'Brien in centre, the same. There's a lot more to come from these players. And hopefully the coaching staff at Leinster can keep them motivated and we can get a few more good performances before the end of the season. Certainly there's a few games that, as a Munster fan, I actually need them to be winning to try and take some points <laughs> off other people. And right there is the glory of the conference system. <laughs> yeah, my enemy's enemy is my friend. <laughs> Pretty much. We'll move on to Saturday, and the first game was Ospreys hosting Dragons in another Welsh derby. And they won 29 points to 20. With a bonus point. But never looked comfortable. There is no part of this game that felt like a rugby match. Like, it was compelling... But in the same way that two people standing in the middle of a boxing ring just endlessly headbutting each other in the chest would be compelling. Especially when Osprey's best players were their pack. And not because they 
monster dragons because they were running the better lines and were picking the better passes than anyone else on the pitch. I mean, the back line were picking some nice passes. It just happened that most of them were intercepts. Like, Ospreys set up every try in this game. They set up all of their own, and the two Dragons tries came from intercepts and mistakes. But to be fair to Dragons, they were pretty clinical in capitalising on those opportunities, which is not a phrase I've said all year. The problem is, they could never create any for themselves, and and that's the big cloud that's going to hang over Dragons. They've turned into very good poachers, and playing a limited game plan. They just don't create anything and they don't have the players at the moment that are going to create anything for them. And with Amos going to Cardiff next season, one of their bright sparks is leaving them. Yeah, even when you look at their halfbacks, Roger Williams is good but not great. Jason Tovey, again, solid but not great. Actually, the best 10 on the pitch for the first half of the game was Justin Tipperick, who seemed to be lining up at first receiver more often than Luke Price was. And, like, he was the one who was chasing back Williams for one of those breakaway tries. He's so fast. But why was he playing? Like, why was this Welsh international who won a Grand Slam seven days previously playing? As was Adam Beard. As was Josh Navidi. Whatever about player management, you would like to think that the Welsh would want their players in top condition coming into a World Cup. Particularly given they have, let's be honest, so little to play for in the league this year. These two teams in particular. Both these teams are out of the playoff hundred in real terms and they have no European rugby next weekend like all the Welsh teams are going to get a break I'm guessing that's why they're all played because they know they can get their break next week but come on like seriously but you know what even bringing those players in this was still an incredibly sloppy game there was a lot of errors no real control coming from halfback particularly in the Dragons but both sides were guilty of that as well Davies did help when he came on but not by much no The most interesting point of this game was the last couple of minutes where Ospreys did get that bonus point try. But in reality, it could have just as easily been a try for the Dragons a couple of seconds previously. It was a real 14-point swing. Dragons player almost intercepts and would have had a clear run to the line, but just gets the ball ripped back out of his hands by the Ospreys winger. And that's just bad luck, whereas the third try Ospreys scored all came from a horrendous call by Nigel Owen saying a tackle was completed where there was clear crossing. Like, that would have been a dominant tackle, Ospreys on the back foot and not being able to complete that passage of play. So we came to this point a couple of times over the weekend, this idea that referees are being told to decide marginal calls based on whether the outcome has been materially affected so if someone flies in off their feet in a ruck did it matter did it affect any other players no okay fine move on don't worry about it the difference here is that two players lined up to absolutely smash an Ospreys player and one of them was pushed out of the game because of crossing so that did two things it prevented an effective dominant tackle being made as you said but it also took another defender out of the game who would have either been back up on his feet and in the defensive line, or he would have been smashing the hell out of the first guy. Either way, you can't say that something as obvious as crossing right in the running lane is not affecting it. A tackle was completed, the intended tackle wasn't, and it should have been penalised. And you kind of think, dragons can't even create their own luck, and it must be really disheartening when other luck is going against them as well. I'm just, I'm done with the, the Nigel Owens show at this point. There's so many occasions where he's not using his TMOs or his assistant referees because he wants to be seen to be making the call in real time and displaying his excellent refereeing, as well as just the little smart alecky comments. Just after Dan Evans dots down the ball for an Ospreys try, Nigel goes, advantage over, and then blows the whistle to award the try. It's just not necessary. 
He did get the ball once at one stage. Oh, I forgot about that. That was kind of funny. I was waiting for somebody to smash him. So so were the commentary team. They're like, if yeah, if Nigel Owens was annoying you, that was a perfect time to go for him, which was I thought was a nice little comment. No, unfortunately, I was too far away. But what was really impressive for me for both teams was the fitness, because a lot of these guys played a Six Nations campaign and were playing here again. And this is about Cardiff and Scarlets as well. The fitness of the Welsh players is phenomenal to be able to actually play like that. And I'll give that to the Italians as well. A lot of those would have come off games last Saturday. And the Benetton boys lining up against Connacht on Friday had a tough ask on them. So I think fair play from a fitness point of view. We move on to the next game and Ulster hosted the Southern Kings in Ravenhill. And a 33 point to 19 victory. Is about what you would expect, but not in the manner that you would have thought. Kings were much better here than normal. On the podcast, we've been talking about if they can find that line of discipline and intensity, they should be fine. And for 68 minutes, they had it. <laughs> they did. Let's cover that now, I guess. Big incident in this game was where the Kings managed to go from 15 players to 13. In two tackles. At the same time. <laughs> so one player red carded for a shoulder, direct contact to the head. Balakun might have been ducking a little bit. But there was no wrapping in the tackle. like So I think he gave the ref no choice in the matter. No, clear red for me. Probably what made that even more unfortunate was that the play continued for another couple of seconds. And John Cooney sliding down on his knees got hit and with a swinging arm also in the head. And another Kings player was yellow carded for that. N- no issue with the decisions. And in particular, actually, credit to the, to the referee. Communication on this was extremely clear. But... Just really tough for the Kings then, who had been creeping back into the game. Yeah, as much as Ulster were on top throughout this game and you always knew they would win, Kings never let them out of their sight. Let's not forget, when that happened, they were within seven points, having gone kind of try for try over the first 60 minutes of the game. And then, in order to gloss up the scoreline a bit, Ulster had a good 15-minute period where they were a man or two men up, and they scored one try. I have a very simple solution to that for Ulster going forward. Draw a man before you pass the ball. Like far too often where Ulster players just drifting across the attacking line with ball in hand. Or passing the ball miles before the defender gets to them. So the defensive line can just shuttle out a player, shuttle out a player. They weren't committing anybody. It took Ludic being injured and Lowry coming on early on in the game for someone to actually do it. And what happened? A try was scored. By which point Ulster had probably given away at least one or two opportunities for a try already. Easily. But the Kings were patient and their ball retention was good. You had a little thing in this game. You were watching the Kings phase count. Because if they got to 10 phases within the Ulster 22, you figured they were going to score. And you were right at least twice. They did it twice in the Ulster 22. They scored (laughs) twice in the Ulster 22. I I was right. It would be nice if they had onto the ball more than that. So there was a bigger sample size. But yeah, they did also get... A kind of a fluky try, which was fun. Yeah, at one point, Bears fluffed his run, but got the ball passed to his stomach. Kicks the ball through, thinks he's completely messed up, throws his hands up. All the Ulster players stop. He then realises, wait, I haven't touched this ball with my hand. And goes down to dot down this loose ball. You're you're giving him a lot of credit. I don't know what he realised. I think what he definitely realised was, I'm behind the line and the ball is there. So he just grabbed it dotted it down, and immediately was like, TMO? They checked it eventually. I mean, they nearly missed that when it went back for a previous penalty advantage that the Kings had. But on checking it, sure enough, try. And just a great lesson. Always play the ball dead. Always play the whistle. 
And even the ref didn't know should he blow the whistle. It was kind of mad. It was like, what's, what's, I'm just going to let this finish and then decide, which was smart by him. I think where Ulster were able to win this game and grind out that win was two things. One, their physicality throughout the game was impressive. The carrying from Nagel and O'Connor in the second row and again, could see it, just a monster on and over the ball. But then John Cooney coming off the bench in the second half really lifted their levels as well. I have this thing about players not being good or bad, but you realise how good a player is when he replaces someone of a less standard than himself. Shanahan has had a couple of really strong games for Ulster this year, but it just wasn't working for him on Saturday. Cooney was able to come in and had the advantage, like Dan Bigger in the Six Nations, of having watched the first 40, 50, 60 minutes of a game. He can then come on and know exactly what needs to be done to change it. And Ulster did kick on and they did improve. Not immensely, but enough to get the bonus point win. Well, it also helped, though, that for the first 20 minutes of the second half, the Kings seemed to have forgotten all of the good work that they were doing in the first half and played some pretty aimless stuff, which let Ulster start to build a lead. Look, the second half just got away from Kings. The cards didn't help. Ulster have the win. Happy out. Not the best build-up for next weekend, though. No, and they've got a tough trip to Dublin, obviously, in Europe next week. They would have wanted a little bit more, but the likes of Ian Henderson, hopefully, will be back fit next week. Will Addison looks really unlikely to make it back, and that's a shame for them. And with Louis Ludic going off with what looked like a HIA, I can't imagine him making it back next week either. And that was Conference B dealt with for the weekend. It was. We were left with a Conference A double header to close out Saturday night. Glasgow hosted Cheetahs and Munster hosted Zebra. And we'll start with Glasgow Cheetahs and delay your pain a bit more. Thanks. <laughs> and this was, on paper, the game for the neutral. Two teams who like to throw the ball around and play really fast, high-tempo rugby. And that's the game we got. We did. I just don't think we got it with the level of cohesion and the level of fluency that we would have expected. Quite a choppy game with a lot of unforced errors. And Glasgow set their stall early, going to the corner of a penalty and barging over. It's a big call to do that early in the game. It's only a good call if you get the seven points. And they did. And I think there was a couple of things here. They were getting an awful lot of penalties because the Cheetahs at the breakdown were getting very stringently refereed by Clancy. And I think Glasgow got away with a little bit more. Now, whether that's just naivety and not positioning their bodies effectively, but the Glasgow players were definitely getting more of a rub. Although it would have helped if the Cheetahs players had been a bit more switched on in the ruck. You know, listen to Clancy giving out to you on a constant basis. Like four rucks in a row. The Cheetahs players just were giving away penalties by not listening to Clancy's instructions. I say he must have lost a head at them. He did look like he was starting to lose his patience. And smart move by the Cheetahs coaching staff. They actually pulled off their number six, which of course is their open side flanker. And just said, no, get him out of there. Just get him off the pitch. Because he was literally on a fast track to a yellow card. But that's them without the ball kind of at this season. Not really switched on to what's going on. But going forward, they were lightning. I think... Mayer, who's their scrum half, was trying to basically drift across the line and pick a pass. Wasn't quite getting the running lines from his backs that he would have wanted. But their ball retention was excellent and their offloading game. In fact, both teams' offloading game made this a real entertaining fixture. And these offloads were sticking, like, all 90% of the time, which was enjoyable to watch. 
part of that is that the cheetahs use a very high percentage style of offloading in that it's almost always a kind of a rolled pass with the ball coming upwards with glasgow it's more of a pass out of the tackle when they offload to a particular player with the cheetahs they almost just kind of like lift the ball up and leave it there and any one of about two or three players could take that pass. It's like how Finn Russell passes. He passes to space and not to a person and cheetahs offload to an area and you have to be there to get the ball. And their support lines are generally so good that that happens. And when you've got a back three of Small Smith, Max Wane and Malcolm Yar, you know they're going to create opportunities out wide. Although Probably one of the quietest games I've seen Max Wane play. Yeah, and like his stats are not good from this game. 12 carries, 16 metres made. That is awful. By his standards, I mean, still pretty okay. (laughs) The one that shocked me, though, was the level of missed tackles responsible for all of the tries, both Glasgow's ones and Cheetah's. There were some very soft shoulders being found in Scottsdale. All the tries looked fantastic because no one decided to tackled the great lines they were being run i think there was a turning point in this game for me which was glasgow's third try and for me refereeing team and the tmo got this completely wrong there was very clearly in my view a rook formed where rory hughes was over the ball he then reached back picked the ball and ran over through an unguarded rook see the thing is by hughes touching the player on the ground he was the rook and weirdly, it's almost like the refereeing team aren't up on the laws because Clancy clearly asked the TMO how many Cheetahs players were involved. Ever since that law changed to deal with the whole England-Italy issue was implemented, the attacking team forms a rook by just binding over a ball. This was just a really bad mistake and it gave Glasgow momentum. It gave them a third try and put them on track to that bonus point win. And it was quickly followed by a yellow card at a scrum time for the Cheetahs prop after no warning. And after they had just got a penalty at the previous scrum awarded to the Cheetahs against Glasgow. It just felt like Clancy had a temper tantrum, really. I have no idea what happened. I I was looking at it and the person that got binned wasn't, in my eyes, the person doing anything wrong. It was happening on the far side of the scrum. It did look like the far side went down much, much earlier. But you know what? It was a frustrating game for the Cheetahs, who've had a bit of a nightmare season. That whole second half lift that they had last year just hasn't come through. They haven't managed to live with the loss of players from last season. That might have been a flash in the pan. Maybe there's a longer term build going on. I'm hoping it's the latter in that scenario. But they're such a great team to watch. They are. And both of these teams can look really good when they have as much space as they gave each other today when the tackles are slipping off and the defensive alignment is a little bit sloppy i think cheetahs go back to south africa glasgow have a really tough visit to saracens and they're going to be under a lot more pressure and speaking of pressure and yeah my blood pressure <laughs> <laughs> munster hosted zebra in thoman park and won 31 12 that scoreline flatters this game so much it flatters Munster enormously let's give the score as of about 60 minutes Munster are 12 all this was a really bizarre game Munster started with really good intensity for five minutes and then Zebra scored that opening try and Munster lost the heads it was almost like Munster failing to score on that first attack dented their confidence and then conceding with Zebra's actual first attack of the game knocked it further you could tell they were rocked they weren't able to get their heads back into the game and 
they didn't look like a unit. They didn't look like a cohesive team in the slightest. They really didn't. And it really doesn't help when Kana actually looked like he remembered how to play rugby again. Like, like, he's He's been a basket case for weeks. Why would he pick this week to have his one good game of the season? It was incredible. He was picking some great passes and he was making people run good lines. Like It was all coming through him. No, and he was finding space in behind the Munster back three as well, who were generally pretty good, but Canna was just on fire for that first half. And an issue for me is, like in the Glasgow match, going to the corner constantly, it's only a good call if you get a try. Munster went to the corner three or four times in a row and never looked like scoring a try because the Zebra Mall defence was so smart, pushing him towards the touchline on every occasion. It took until stoppage time in the first half for Munster to get their first points on the board. That's craziness. And as you said, it's not for lack of opportunities. There was two or three line-out malls on the five-meter line where Zebre really effectively defended us. And then their one-up tackles were just really effective. Zebra had a really good first half of rugby. And then Padovani going off, Kana going off. It really, really rocked them. It did. And at the same time as Zebre were losing their star players, Munster were unloading talent off the bench. Chris Farrell came in and made an immediate impact. JJ Hanrahan got hooked. Tyler Blayendall coming on. Again, much more direct, much more controlled. And I'm not a fan of Tyler Blayendall as a 10. I think Johnson's still a better player than him. But he's miles ahead of JJ, especially in this game. Given the injury to Joey Carberry, JJ is probably the closest fit stylistically to Carberry. And the Munster coaching team are desperate to try and play him into a bit of form. Because if Carberry isn't fit next week... We have a genuine problem. And if Albie plays like this, again, with Murray not really firing on all cylinders, you, you're looking to Albie to be hitting the form he was like against Leinster in the RD. Come on, Duncan Williams. <laughs> you mock him. No, no. I mean, he came on and he was actually a lot more composed. Like, Albie getting penalties turned over and back chatting. Like, he, he had the ref against Munster. It was very silly. And in general, there was some silliness in a couple of other places as well. Chris Clute, after just pulling off an unbelievable turnover, one of a number of jackal turnovers he won in this game, flying shoulders a guy through a rock completely unnecessarily. He just needs to take the adrenaline levels down a little bit. That 30 seconds, I, I'm being kind, that 10, 20 seconds of Chris Clote is a literal picture of what he's like for Munster. Incredible and idiotic in 20 seconds. You know what, though? Munster did win this game, but for my money, they were very lucky to be awarded two of their driving mall tries because in both cases, it looked to me like the lifter had actually shuttled around and was offside, basically between the defending team and the ball carrier. Two of those mall tries should not have counted. It should have been penalties for Zebra, lines cleared. Like, we've had the discussion about points being scored and kicks missed, you know, where's it, what's it going to lead to? I never, ever felt like Munster weren't going to win this match. It was just always going to be ugly. To be honest, though, I, I agree with you. I think Munster would have had enough in the tank, particularly looking at how Zebra dipped away in the last 10-15 minutes. But they may have really struggled to get a bonus point if they hadn't been awarded those two tries, which by rights should have been disallowed. And do you know doesn't help Zebra for all their good play, for all the things they were doing. Leaving 11 points from kicks behind is atrocious. Yeah, Carlo Canna took all of his good gameplay and focused it into his on-field play, not his goal kicking, which was still appalling. And if you put that with the tries missed, that's almost a losing bonus point for Zebra and Munster under a lot more pressure. Munster got out of this with the result that they needed. It's a bonus point win. 
And similar to what we talked about with Leinster, not a whole lot of these guys are going to be lining out next week in European rugby. So hopefully bringing back in the big guns and the internationals will lift the team to the level that they are capable of. Because if we play like that next week, that will not go well. But that win was very useful given that Glasgow won. And we'll look at the league tables now. And in Conference A, Glasgow are on 66 points at the top, followed very closely by Munster on 63. And with three games left, there's a maximum possible 15 points left. So both of those teams can mathematically be caught, but it feels like that's going to be our 1-2 in one order or another. Then the third place is very, very interesting. It's Connacht on third ahead of Cardiff on fourth on points difference, and there's only six points in it, with both teams yet to play each other before the end of the year. That's, that's a hell of a battle. It really is. Cardiff timing their run of form perfectly. Whereas Connacht have Jack Carty now becoming an international quality out half at the right time of season. Ospreys, even with their bonus point win this week, are another eight points behind and are pretty much out of contention at this stage. On 44 points and with the run-in they have, I don't think they're going to catch up. And that's them out of Heineken Champions Cup contention now as well. That playoff spot is definitely going to go to one-off Connacht or Cardiff. Almost definitely. They need a lot of other things to go their way. Destiny definitely out of their hands. As is the case for the Cheetahs and for Zebra, who are on 36 points and 18 points respectively. In Conference B, Leinster top, move on. (laughs) (laughs) Ulster are in second place with Benetton close on their heels. Again, you're only talking about nine points between Ulster, Benetton, Edinburgh and Scarlets. With three games left to play and a lot of challenging fixtures for all of those teams tough run into the end of the season yeah none of these teams have easy run-ins like there's no one there you can say are gonna definitely be in those positions come the end of the season and i would definitely not like to say it and i think all their fans definitely not like you to say it either (laughs) okay i can do that (laughs) but then as always kings dragons propping up the table they are. It's going to be really interesting to watch the permutations over the next couple of weeks. I'm excited about potentially Benetton making it into Europe. I just said it, didn't I? You said potentially. Okay, is that enough? <laughs> I'm hopeful for them, to be honest. like On this season, they deserve Champions Cup rugby. And you know what? I think they need it to kick on to that next level. They need to be playing the best opposition. They are a team with two squads. They have the international squad and the ones that have been doing the job with them in the Pro 14. Speaking of players who are doing the job, we'll move on to our second row top performer and clown of the round. And we really do love hearing from you. Like As much as we like picking them out and having a laugh and joke about these type of things, we do like when your input and your choices and we always will give them a nod. So always get in touch with us on facebook.com forward slash the second row or on Instagram and Twitter where we're at the second row. That is 2ND, not the word second. So top performer this week, Porik. I've been taking these for the last while, so figured it was only fair to let you have a crack. Yeah, I, for me, it came between two players. Cutsie uh, for Ulster just had a great game. But for me, it's got to go to Jack Carty for 23 minutes of rugby. <laughs> <laughs> go on. <laughs> like... This is at the point where Benetton were just getting into the game. It was 14 all. He comes in, knocks over that first penalty, 17-14. Then decides, no, we're going to play the game in Benetton's 22 for the next 20 minutes. And that's what he did. His kicks to touch were incredible. Then the try. That incredible chip, collect, offload to Marmion. Then at the other end of the pitch, he's the one finishing off the move, making sure he's there. It was just an incredible cameo. And going to the top of Connacht's all-time point-scoring charts in the process. Big day for Jack Carty. And yeah, it might seem a little bit strange to give somebody who played a quarter of a game the top performer award. 
but he changed the complexion of that game when he came on. And he was literally the standout player across all the other matches. And if commentators had the guts to give a man of the match award to a substitute, they would have given it to him. Well, just as well we have the guts to give him top performer. Nope, <laughs> fair call. I'll allow and, it. I'll allow it. <laughs> and, and this week you've picked our clown the round. Yeah, and uh, this is the closest I've come to a joint award. In the Munster game, after a pretty innocuous chip through by Carlo Canna, Mike Haley absolutely butchers the cleanup, knocks it on, and again, a referee playing good advantage, lets the Zebra player run through and score a try. Extraordinarily daft stuff. But even that wasn't the mentalist thing we saw this weekend. So this week's clown of the round is Reese Patchell. Not for a poor performance, which he had getting hauled off at halftime, but for the particular moment where he decided to try and assassinate his own scrum half. After a long kick through from Cardiff, Patchell gathers it in the backfield and under absolutely no pressure at all, wangs the ball directly into his scrum half in his eyeline. Like the worst clearance I've ever seen. It was absolutely hilarious to watch I, I couldn't believe I'd seen it well we watched it together and I must have rewound it about six times just like chuckling into the TV remote it was perfect like literally clown car stuff and I think the, it happened so early in the weekend but I couldn't go anywhere else for this week's clown of the round and that's kind of what the clown of the round award is for we're not here to batter players and we don't want the guards call them as like has had to happen down in Munster for people atting players in abuse oh. which is just ridiculous so yeah like, that's don't don't do that that's <laughs> not cool look we'll move on to next week and give you a quick chat through the pro 14 teams who are in action in Europe and that means three of the Heineken Champions Cup quarterfinals and one of the Challenge Cup quarterfinals. So we have two All-Pro 14 affairs. Edinburgh host Munster in Murrayfield for what is going to be a forward battle, I think. I don't even know if players with a number higher than 10 on their back are going to get the ball, because these two teams are all about creating a dominant presence. They are, but you know, Edinburgh have a fridge on the wing, so I'm pretty sure they'll want to get the ball to him at some point. (laughs) He's so big. He is, and he's such a great finisher. There's going to be some really good battles across this match. I'm really looking forward to it. When that match finishes, straight away we're into Saracens hosting Glasgow, and I really don't have much hope for Glasgow in this (laughs) match. Glasgow fans, look away now. (laughs) Like, they've played each other twice this season. And got battered twice this season yeah uh, Saracens are just on such a good run of form and particularly given England having had a pretty good game in the Six Nations although maybe a little bit of that Twickenham magic will come in and we can see a Scottish comeback here's hoping like I'd like to see Glasgow win their their style of rugby so enjoyable to watch it would be incredible for the league to have them in the semi-final that would guarantee three of the four semi-finalists from the Pro 14 And that's because the other game coming up immediately after that is Leinster hosting Ulster in Dublin. Like, I'm sorry, Ulster fans. I just can't see past a Leinster win. I I just can't. And your biggest hope is just going, Kutze, Henderson, see that fella in the 10 jersey? (laughs) Hit him. Like, all the time. (laughs) Really, really, really upset him. (laughs) And that's it. Just, I think Sexton's going through a bad patch of form. And I think if you can rattle him early, you have a chance. Look at the Leinster team that's going to be out there, though. You're going to have Grand Slam winners top to bottom, multiple test lions from top to bottom. I think Ulster are really, really up against it, and they need to get into this game and come at it really aggressively and really early and hope that that Leinster slow start comes back. 
a lot of those Leinster players are coming off a really poor Six Nations. Like their confidence is at the lowest it's been for a very long time, whereas Ulster aren't as affected by that. In the Challenge Cup, we have Connacht playing Sale as the sole Pro 14 representative. I'll be over there. Will I'll, you? I've got my flight booked, my hotel booked. Tough away trip for Connacht, though. Sale, admittedly, are a little bit loose in the Premiership, but they're still a good side with a lot of top players. They are. We beat them in the sports ground this year. We should have got more from the AJ Bell when we were there earlier on in the season. It's going to be a very good match. It's actually a nice chance for Connacht to go and redeem themselves. I think not necessarily unlucky, but I think it was poor for Connacht not to win away at Sale this year, given how that game played out. It really was. But there are other teams playing in these competitions as well. Madness. In the Champions Cup, Racing and Toulouse are playing in the fourth quarter final, all French affair. That will be a cracking affair, like two very good attacking teams. Toulouse's youthful team on their eyes. I'd like to see them win over a more money bags team of Racing 92. Zebo, Zebo, Zebo. No. No. Oh. <laughs> In the Challenge Cup, then, the other three quarterfinals are Worcester against Harlequins, La Rochelle playing Bristol, and Claremont v Northampton closing us out on Sunday night. Yeah, 7 o'clock, Sunday night kickoff. They obviously don't care about us podcasters. <laughs> or the fans of Northampton who have to travel to Claremont. Like, seriously. And that's us for this week, Park. Yeah, thanks very much for listening. We'll be back next week to review how the Pro 14 teams got on in all those matches. And we'll also then get to decide how much we care about the semi-finals. <laughs> so until next time, take care, good luck, and thanks for listening. Bye-bye, everyone.